2, Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. In several podcast episodes, you've heard us refer to research studies that claim to show that nurse practitioner care is just as good or better than care provided by physicians. And we've shown that in many of these cases, the study authors are using flawed methodology or they fail to disclose important information, like the fact that nurse practitioners are working under physician supervision. Today, we invite you to attend Patient at Risk's first journal club. It's a session where we're going to dissect a study that claims to show that having more nurse practitioners working in hospitals improves patient care. The methodology used by the authors is just about one of the most egregious examples of this flawed uh, methodology or not telling the whole story that I personally have ever seen. So to help me explain this study, I'm joined by two physician experts, Dr. Dylan Golem and Dr. Marsha Haley. Welcome both of you to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Golem, you actually brought this study to my attention, and so I'd love for you to start us off just by telling our audience a little bit about yourself and how you first learned about this study. Sure. So I am Dr. Dylan Golem. I am a psychiatry resident physician currently approaching the end of my third year out of four years of postgraduate medical training to specialize in general psychiatry. And for those of us who know the rigor of medical training, that means excelling in undergrad and a core science degree, making it through the selective med school acceptance process, finishing medical school, and now having completed thousands of hours of hands-on practical clinical experience. And I still have over a year left before I'm finished. You know, despite it being easily available public knowledge, I won't proactively state my residency program affiliation since I'm not really here to represent my program, but instead... Um, as a free agent and supporter of the Physicians for uh, Patient Protection Values. And so I first came across this study when a family member who actually lives in Philadelphia alerted me to this study being posted on social media. And this family member and I have had discussions regarding the changes in medicine that we're seeing, including a heavier reliance on nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And he also has a strong scientific data analysis background. He holds a degree in both computer science and mathematics. And I had read Patients at Risk and shared this book with him, with this family member. And they were somewhat surprised by some of what they learned from that book. And so when they came across this article, they proactively shared it with me to elicit my thoughts on the study, especially since it came from UPenn, which is a respected Ivy League university. And because it was being used to pretty obviously further the NP autonomous practice agenda. And at that time, I had printed it out and brought it to clinic with me, where in between patients, I just started reading it and taking some notes. And before long, I'd encountered a number of issues that I had with the study. And so after discussing these concerns with that family member, I decided to reach out to physicians for patient protection, hoping that it could be presented to a wider audience. And I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you so much. It is such a fascinating example of what we were always talking about, which are these incredible headlines that look so positive. But when you start digging into the actual study, it's actually completely outlandish. So before we get into that, let me talk to uh, Dr. Haley. She's joining us again. Thank you so much. You have a special interest in medical research. And can you just remind our audience a little bit about your background and why you think it's so important that, that doctors and really everyone understand how to critically analyze medical literature? 
Yes, thank you for having me. I'm a clinical assistant professor of radiation oncology at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm also graduating with my master's of public health on May 1st. So the master's of public health degree is obviously pretty heavy in research dynamics, as well as my um, academic affiliation. So it is important to really critically look at these studies, especially when policymakers are looking at studies that are potentially being represented to um, shape policy. And if those studies are flawed, that can really have an effect on patient safety. And I first became aware of the article also through uh, Physicians for Patient Protection. Thank you. And, you know, before we dive into the actual article, let's talk about this concept of journal club. And Marcia, share with our audience a little bit about what is the idea of journal club? Sure. So the idea of Journal Club is for a group of physicians to get together and critically evaluate journal articles. And they're typically journal articles from peer review data, so peer review journals. And we look at the different aspects of the study. How was it designed? You know, what is the background of the study? What were the authors looking for? Um, How were the data evaluated? What were the results, the conclusions, and how do they fit into the larger medical literature? So in radiation oncology, in my program, we have a journal club once a week. It's led by the residents in the program. And uh, the attendings um, kind of shape the discussion. And we review data for each of the different disease sites sites that we treat for radiation oncology. So I guess the idea is that we're not supposed to just read a headline or an abstract, which is just a summary of the article and read the summary and say, oh, it says this. So I guess I'll believe it. We're actually supposed to really delve into the study and try to understand what was really done and whether those results that the authors are claiming to be uh, the outcome are actually valid. Now, Dylan, is this something that you and your residency program and in medical school have done a lot of work with journal clubs? Yeah, so we, as part of our didactics curriculum, we have journal clubs that are expected to be run by residents. We typically have, unfortunately, only one time a month, but it's with two presentations. Um, So at least two journal articles a month on top of just the general expectation that you stay on top of recent literature. So. Right. And it's so important. And I think that this study is just such a great example of why we really need to read critically the literature, especially when the headlines are so egregious or they they seem to be saying something that's really important for policy. So the title of this article that we're reviewing today is called The Value of Nurse Practitioner Inpatient Hospital Staffing. And it was published in the journal Medical Care And that was released in October of 2021. So the idea of this study was to actually ask whether or not having nurse practitioners, having more nurse practitioners in an inpatient setting would improve patient care and patient outcomes. So um, Dylan, why don't you start us out by, you know, I'll just go through what journal clubs are supposed to ask. The objective was, the the, the introduction said, we know that having more nurses and having RN staffing in hospitals is associated with better outcomes. Therefore, why wouldn't having more nurse practitioners also improve outcomes as well? So the objective read, to determine whether the presence of more nurse practitioners produces better patient outcomes net of RN staffing. So independent of registered nurse staffing, they wanted to show that. Before we even get into the details, Dylan, what was the uh, final verdict that the authors claimed was the outcome of this study? 
So their verdict, unsurprisingly, was that more NPs lead to better care for patients and for better job satisfaction, lower burnout, et cetera, of the other workers in the hospital. Right. So ultimately, in the abstract, they said that having more nurse practitioners in an acute inpatient setting lowered 20-day mortality, lowered seven-day readmission rates, decreased average length of stay, lowered costs, that patients and nurses in these hospitals with more NPs reported better quality, better safety. The nurses themselves, the RNs, said that they had less burnout, that they had higher job satisfaction, greater intention of staying in the job, and in summary, quote, having more NPs in the hospital has favorable effects and it adds value to labor resources. So that's a pretty bold conclusion, basically saying that it just sold a wealth of improvements from having more nurse practitioners. And Dylan, one of the things that I, I you sent me uh, a write-up of some of your thoughts, and one of the things that I saw that you mentioned was in the introduction, they say that very few studies have been released on inpatient review of nurse practitioner quality, but yet there was an abundance of ambulatory studies saying that patients cared for by nurse practitioners had good clinical outcomes and were satisfied with their care. What, what was it that made you notate that section? Well, so part of it was, you know, some of the points that have been brought up in this podcast before, but, and also in the book, Patients at Risk, you know, it, there's a lot of examples of these studies that claim to show that nurse practitioners do just as well or better. And, and essentially all of those cases, they're, they're being supervised. It's often small study samples. They have very limited, almost like algorithmic type of care models. But nonetheless, they'll, you know, the NP lobby will point to these studies as pretty much reasons as to why NPs can practice autonomously. Right. So they're saying this is what they usually do in these articles. There'll be an introduction and a background and they'll just say, well, studies have already proven that this is already a given and this is known. And so you'll see that repeated over and over again, but very rarely with the caveats that these were nurse practitioners under physician supervision. They were self-limited problems, et cetera, et cetera. So diving into this study, we talked about the different questions that journal clubs would ask, we would should analyze. And the first thing is just what is the type of study and what is the study design? So Marsha, this study was described as a cross-sectional study. Can you tell our audience what a cross-sectional study really is and what that means? A cross-sectional study is looking at the data at a single point in time. It is best for non-fatal or chronic diseases. It is also subject to what we call temporal bias, meaning that the conclusion it could be caused by the uh, variable or the variable could cause the conclusion. So you kind of have to think it's almost like the chicken and the egg issue. For this particular study, if we look at some of the outcomes, we could say that having more NPs on the inpatient service or as the study was designed, which I'm sure you're going to get into, the thought that you have <laughs> more NPs in the hospital makes for happier nurses, happier patients, and lower costs. Or the reverse could be true, which is called reverse causality. You could say that happiness and good staffed nurses, well-run clinics, and happy patients attract more NPs to work in that clinic. So, you know, you have to think about that as well. So that's the major limitation with a cross-sectional study. 
Thank you for that. So this study looked at data from one year between 2015 and 2016. They analyzed data from 579, what they called hospitals. But Dylan, these were actually acute care hospitals or facilities. Can you describe how that might be different from what we think of as a hospital? Looking at what they said, I think actually later in the study, it it looks like it was mostly kind of acute care surgical patients where nothing against surgeons or anything like that, but they're often very big on optimizing people medically before they even hit the unit to be considered for surgery. And they're typically not as medically complex if possible. If if the surgery can be held off, it's held off typically if there's significant medical comorbidities. So it kind of looks like they were looking at like surgeries that are just above, you know, like um, outpatient surgeries, like they they required a night or two or something. But in that situation, you could argue that NPs may be helpful as as extenders. But I think it's very far from the idea of where their conclusion lands, which is NPs should be inpatient. Essentially, they're they're stretching that to say that they should essentially become hospitalists and replace hospitalists. Right. I mean, just the title of itself of this article is inpatient care. They don't mention in the headline, the title that this is specifically acute care, post-surgical care. This is not something that can be extrapolated to all hospitals, even if the results are valid. And then they looked at four states, California, Florida, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. And these were all nurse practitioners working under physician supervision, uh, presumably since these are all surgical patients. So they don't really explicitly say that, but I would assume that to be the case. Let's talk about what they actually looked at in this study. Marcia, what was the main way that these authors obtained their data? So it was really interesting the way that they obtained the data. So they randomly surveyed RNs from these four states that you mentioned. They initially say that the response rate of the nurses is unknown because our sampling frame included all RNs. However, they did this follow-up survey where they intensively resurveyed non-responders through extensive recontacts, monetary incentives, and a shorter version of the survey, which was a little odd. And the big thing with this study is how they measured the number of nurse practitioners in the hospital was asking the RNs to estimate the number of NPs and then dividing this by the number of beds, which I thought was really bizarre because if you asked me how many NPs worked in my hospital, I would probably give the wrong number. I think I would rather use AHA data or state nursing staffing data to get that information. So using that as your main, you know, that's kind of like their main point is the number of NPs in the hospital and using that on a survey to for people to estimate it. It's just a really poor methodology. Yeah, it made no sense. And Dylan, maybe you can help me understand this because I kept reading it and not I'm not an expert in uh, this sort of thing. So I kept reading it. Help me understand, because what they said was, first of all, as Marsha said, they randomly surveyed nurses and they got the nurses off of the state license lists. And they mentioned that, first of all, they didn't even know that these nurses even worked for the hospitals. They had to go back, I guess, and retroactively figure out. They asked the nurses if they worked for a particular hospital, and then they apparently went back and somehow manipulated the data because they said here, The response rate of hospital nurses is unknown because our sample frame included all RNs without information on whether or where they were employed. 
In their survey responses, however, nurses told us whether and where they were employed, and hospital nurses provided their employing hospital name, enabling us to link respondent to hospitals, yielding a comprehensive database. So it sounds like there was just all sorts of manipulation going on here. And as Marcia also mentioned, they they don't say how many people answered the first survey, but they it obviously wasn't adequate because then they went back and then they did what she said, as she described, they intensively resurveyed. And what they did was they used, quote, extensive recontacts. So they really tried to track people down. They used monetary incentives and they even gave them a shorter version. So they ended up with a final response rate of 87%. But then they claimed that they weren't worried about all those efforts they made. They said that that was, quote, nearly unbiased because there was no differences in the in the answers compared to the initial people that weren't prompted. And then this second group. So what do you think about that, Dylan? Shouldn't they have at least told us like what percentage of people answered the first time and who had to be prodded? Yeah, I think, you know, in almost in any study, more data would be better. There's multiple places in this study where more details would have been nice. You know, this is one of them. You know, they they literally had to pay nurses to to complete this study. And I think part of why they did that is because they wanted to reach that percentage that was high enough that they could cite that one source from like two decades ago that says this means that it represents the larger body better. I thought it was very interesting too, um, just that they had to try so hard to get the responses that they needed to make this study happen. You know, if if there was no difference between the initial survey and the post survey, why did they even need to go further? Like if they had enough data to start with, they could have just ran the numbers there. That's a good point. And then the big point, as Marcia was saying, the the main way that they obtained their data, everything was based on one number, which was the ratio of nurse practitioners to hospital beds. And the way they obtained that was by asking these nurses who answered the survey to estimate the number of nurse practitioners working at their hospital. So Dylan, I mean, what is that? And then then they did mention, they said, quote, while these categories are somewhat crude and arbitrary, sensitivity analysis showed that they produced similar results to those obtained using an expanded number of categories or even a continuous measure of NPs per 100 beds, the latter of which we felt would convey a false degree of precision. Like, what are they even talking about? What does this mean, a continuous measure of meaning to actually go and count the number of NPs versus estimating it? Help me understand this. So I I don't think they ever intended to actually get a better measure of how many MPs were in the hospital. I think the survey data of these RNs essentially guesstimating was all that they planned on doing. I think what they meant was that as far as like what buckets they chose, like under one, two to three, three plus, I think they, what they were, what they're trying to say is we chose buckets instead of just a linear continuum of like NPs per bed ratio, because like a linear continuum like that might suggest that there's more granularity to it than there is. Um, Nonetheless, like, I mean, they at least admitted that it was kind of arbitrary and crude, but I think they, they, they kind of breeze over that real quick in one sentence. Whereas like at the core of this, this is, this is nurses guessing how many NPs are in their hospital. Yeah. These are registered nurses that are just hospital employees. That's exactly like what Marcia said. That's like, if you said to me, Hey, you're, you're credentialed at your local hospital. How many doctors do you think work at that hospital? 
and me being like, I, I don't know, maybe like a hundred, you know, and maybe there's 500. Like, I'm just guessing. I have no idea. And you're just going to take my guess and you're going to base a study around it. Am I crazy or is this just, how did this get published? I agree. When I first read this, like when I first brought it to the clinic and started reading it, like right after the method section, I was like, I could probably stop reading this now, you know, like seriously, but I kept reading it because I was intrigued. And of course there was more problems that kind of bubbled up, but at the, at the end of it, you know, that's, that's really the problem. Like we almost could stop here and just say, look at that study design. Like this is, we know how bad people are at estimating, you know, big things like that. And I, I couldn't guess how many NPs per hundred beds there are in the hospital I work at. At the, at the core of it, we really have pretty flawed data, but, you know, even moving forward, I just said, you know what, I'm going to take this as factual and, and see if it still checks out. And then it still didn't. So, which we'll get to, but. Great. Well, the other thing they asked the nurses was, were to self-report the outcomes, meaning they asked them things like, do you think your hospital is very good? Do you, would you recommend your hospital to someone else? How do you feel the administration responds and how do you feel patients do? It was very, very subjective. And then Marcia, they did uh, their, the next thing we need to look at is the analytical approach. And they used a logistic regression model. Now I don't, I'm not an expert in statistics. So what do you know about logistic regression models and what are your thoughts on the way they analyze this data? So they claimed to use the robust logistic regression model, but we're not sure what that uh, robust means. And they said that they used it to account for the clustering of nurses and to take into account the demographic differences like age, floor, number of RNs, percent of bachelor degree nurses, et cetera. And then they said, to simplify the results, we coded the categories one, two, and three and constrain the differences to be linear. I believe that uh, Dylan actually did a more um, in-depth analysis of this particular statistical method. Yeah, Dylan, fill us in because this is not, this is all uh, over my head, but I mean, it just was a lot of words that didn't really seem to say anything to me. There's statistical analysis. Yeah. So, you know, my issue with that, first of all, they, they continue to multiple times in the study, they reference these robust logistic regression models that they don't really go into more detail about, but just assuming that that's what they were and that they were, you know, robust models. I thought it was interesting that they constrained it to a linear model. That's another thing that just reading it before I even saw the results, even though I kind of knew what the results were going to point to, I had an issue with, because, you know, they're, they're saying that there's a linear correlation between NPs in the hospital and all of these other outcomes like spending and burnout and all these things, happiness with your job. This is how you break when you're trying to do like like mathematical proofs. Like you, you take it to the extreme and you realize that it, it just doesn't hold true. And so if if it really is a linear relationship, at some point the return on investment will stop. Like if if burnout hits zero and satisfaction and, and patient and worker satisfaction hits a hundred, eventually you have to admit that adding more NPs past that will make no sense. And then as far as cost goes, if you take it to the extreme, if we had a million NPs for every patient, obviously the cost of hiring all those NPs and everything would, it would eventually lead to cost losses. And so there's no way that either of these could necessarily be a linear relationship. And I get that in math, you know, things are imperfect. Models are called models for a reason, but I just found it very interesting that they just decided to go with a linear model. I don't know if it was easier or if the numbers checked out better, but it just, it doesn't really check out. Eventually there's going to be that diminishing return on investment or negative return on investment. 
but they decided to roll with the linear for some unknown reason. They said that it looked kind of linear and that's why they ran with it. And that's kind of the best explanation they gave. But Dylan, is it possible to hold constant all these other variables that they kept saying that they use these robustic regression models and they claimed that it, quote, took into account all these demographic differences? They claimed that they were able to somehow separate that make this that this was independent of the number of nurses that worked at the hospital, independent of all these other variables. That sounds like something that would be very complicated to do and not that simple. Am I wrong? I agree. So they they can say that they attempted to control for these things the best they can based off of whatever data were in those data sets and then whatever was in the survey, I guess, which were probably also guesstimates. At the end of the day, it's going to be really hard to estimate a lot of those things, you know, and even if they're controlling nurses for how many are bachelor trained versus not and all those things, are they controlling for how many you know, assistants are there and other like non-RN nursing staff, just general staffing. Like my overall, my overall impression of this entire study, not to give it away, is just that better staffing is better outcomes, not necessarily NPs, but they just pigeonholed it to that because that fits their agenda or the perception that there's more staff at least. Right. I think perception is really important because you're going to RNs and you're saying, hey, number one, how many um, NPs do you think will work at your hospital? Number two, do you like your hospital? Do you think that it's good? Are you happy with it? Number three. And then so, again, this is all uh, these are perceptions that people have. And there's really no facts to base these feelings on. They may be true, but they may be completely untrue. And we don't know. And we have nothing to compare this against. So ultimately, the results came out that none of the registered nurses that answered this this survey were really that excited about their hospitals. They were um, 32% of all RNs that answered rated their their hospital or their, remember, these are acute care facilities, rated them highly. Only 45% of the nurses recommended their own hospital to others. 40% said that their hospital was excellent only. So 60% said they weren't. 46% said that they trusted that their management would resolve patient problems and that only 51% of nurses actually believed that patients would be able to manage their own care after they were discharged. So, Marsha, what did you think about those results just in general? It didn't surprise me. Um, You know, there's an epidemic of burnout in the nursing profession. And as we know, with the corporate takeover of medicine, they're constantly pushing nurses to do more with less. They're decreasing nursing staffing ratios. And I will say that the, um, the first author of this article has for many years been a big proponent of safe nursing staffing ratios. So I think perhaps the intent was good, but the method was very flawed, as we talked about. So given the, uh, the conditions that nurses have to work in these days, I wasn't all that surprised with these results. Yeah, it was kind of depressing when I read that. What was interesting was that when they asked patients about how they felt, they actually had much better ratings of the facility. They rated... of them rated it highly and 70% said they would definitely recommend it. So the uh, patients had much better reviews than the nurses did. And then ultimately they claimed that the, the nurses that said that they had more nurse practitioners at their hospital rated that facility more highly. And then they went back and they, I guess, cross matched the facilities with more nurse practitioners, according to nurses estimates as matching to having lower 20-day mortality, shorter average length of stay, lower costs. Let's go back to, Marcia, you started mentioning about the lead author, which is who is Linda Aiken. She's a PhD with the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy Research 
at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. Talk about some of the other background of the other authors on this study and where they got their funding. Funding for the study was provided by the National Institute of Nursing Research of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the National Council of the State Boards of Nursing. Right. I noticed that all of the authors on the study were PhDs. There was a DNP, which is a Doctor of Nurse Practice, a nurse practitioner doctorate degree, and that really that they all pretty much came from nursing schools and nursing institutions. So, Dylan, did you feel that there was a sort of a vested interest in these results being what they were? Yeah, so that's one of the things that I kind of highlighted. Everyone there is a PhD or NP, and there's a DNP. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, all of the funding sources were from nursing colleges at, at universities or the Robert Woods Foundation, things like that, that have historically kind of pushed for more nursing practice rights and things like that. And so I'm not saying that nursing colleges can't make good nursing science or data. But I, I do certainly think they contributed to kind of how they slanted it. You know, if it didn't show that they were they had better outcomes, would this ever have even been published or or did it show that at first and they rejiggered the algorithm until they got what they wanted? You know, so the, the conclusion of the study, taking it back to our journal club for our conclusion, which is having more NPs in hospitals has favorable effects on patients, staff nurse satisfaction and efficiency. NPs add value to existing labor resources. Did this study show that? Taking into account that we've talked about some questionable methodology, it does appear to show that. And common sense would dictate that that's the case. If you have more NPs, you know, their conclusions say that NPs in advanced care roles and inpatients are a valuable adjunct to existing inpatient hospital physician and RN professional care. That makes sense, right? I mean, adding more NPs, more staff to existing physician and RN professional care improves outcomes that I can believe. The part that I have issue with is their discussion section, how they say that their findings are relevant to policy debates about NP scope of practice and unsupervised nurse practitioner practice. That is, it's not necessarily the conclusion section. It was more the discussion section that I had issue with. Yeah, same here. It you know they made their conclusion that NPs have value, and then the discussion was essentially that these autonomous practice agreements, these collaborative agreements in states, and that we shouldn't have these. Essentially, was the takeaway. And they all four states that they did this in were in states that if you go to the AANP site, they don't consider it full practice authority for NPs. Even Florida, which I was kind of surprised. I, I could have sworn they were full, but they. Whatever A and P's just uh, primary care, uh, they can have uh, some autonomy in primary care. Gotcha. And so, um, and so, you know, they 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 sent the survey out to tens, you know, thousands of RNs across all sorts of states, and and they could have easily done this in states where they actually have full autonomy if they wanted to actually test if they work in that setting, but they didn't. That's a very interesting point. So I guess, Marcia, I think you're 100% right, and, and Dylan too. So what you're saying here is that, yes, the study shows that having NPs, and this is something we always say in PPP, NPs and PAs have value. They're important. They're important members of the healthcare team. But what the study does not say is that replacing physicians with acute care nurse practitioners in an inpatient setting is going to give patients those same outcomes or create all these benefits 
that they are kind of leading us to believe could happen based on this estimating study. Does that sound about right, Marsha? Yes, exactly. And to be fair to the authors, um, they say in their discussion section that there is no evidence documenting that state-mandated collaborative agreements result in improved patient outcomes. And since this study um, has been published in October of 2021, there has been a very good um, longitudinal study done in in Mississippi, which I believe, um, if you haven't already, you'll address um, on your podcast. But um, so there is data now showing that these there is a big difference between uh, the autonomous practice versus the the supervised practice. So we do have data now, good data showing that that's longitudinal data. Great point. That's the Hattiesburg uh, study. So that's one we definitely have to talk all about. Dylan, any other final thoughts? I think that was the big things. You know, there's there was a lot of design issues and then their conclusion kind of just stretched the results is the, is the short story of it. I think stretch is the right word. And that's what we often see is take a a summary and then extrapolate it to something that really the study may have never been designed to actually look at. Well, thank both of you so much for coming on the program to discuss this really important study from the perspective of it being just another great example of some of the science and some of the literature that we see published and the importance of really reading and understanding what exactly was done, what is the methodology, and what are the implications for policy. And it needs to be based on a lot more than just an abstract or a headline uh, that someone copies into a, a media post somewhere. So thank you so very much. If you'd like to learn more about this issue, we'd encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Barnes & Noble and at Amazon. And if you're a doctor and you'd like to learn more about getting involved, we would love for you to join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection, our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. If you'd like to come on the podcast, if you've read an interesting study, you just want to share some thoughts like Dylan did. He reached out, he sent an email, we got him on the show, and we thank you so much for being part of this. So we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks so much. 